Hello, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. In this season, Human 2.0, we will be talking to scientists and non-scientists alike about technology and innovation surrounding the human experience. We are your hosts. I'm Angelica Pasquini. And I am the Bull Bay, but you could just call me Bay. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about death with palliative care physician David Kasserat about death, dying, and dignity in the end-of-life care. As this is the final episode of the season, we want to say thank you so much for listening and learning along with us. This has been an incredible experience, and we're excited to end it by talking about the ultimate ending, death, the biology of death. You're also going to hear guests from our previous episodes talk about how their fields specifically relate to the biology of death. Take a deep breath for this one, right, death? We're talking about death, people. To our listeners, I guess trigger warning, but ultimately, honey, it's coming. <laughs> Get used to it. Yeah, let's just it's here. It's here. Get used to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we're still trying to understand it, right? We don't know all the workings around it and its significance. Yeah. I, I mean, Madonna said life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. Right. That's in like a prayer, you know, the opening line. And I, as everything else she says, I take that really seriously because (laughs) (laughs) I love her. How do you feel about that? So personally, if I can be vulnerable for a moment, I actually have panic attacks and and night terrors um, around death. And, you know, I still, I still deal with those, those episodes, if you will. And I understand, I'm trying to like break it down because I understand that those that panic it comes from the concept of things being absolute mm-hmm. you know like you'll absolutely be gone and i'm always trying to step away from that for a second and understand a little bit more of the science around it and, and what does it mean to be dead yeah. um i know we're made up of you know stardust and, and and many other elements of the universe and you know it's a transfer of energy and you know it, we can get really spiritual with it and things like that but i'm Although it causes me a lot of like existential dread and, and yeah. panic, I'm still so curious about the mechanisms behind it and what does it actually mean? Because uh, personally, I don't tend to think of my world and how it functions in absolutes. And so thinking about death as an absolute, that also doesn't fit into my mind. Also, living forever causes me panic attacks too. So I'm yeah. like, <laughs> I got to figure out death. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I yeah. hear you. I think that uh, it's been a source of anxiety f- since the beginning of time, which is why people have created so many different types of reasoning around what it could potentially be. And yeah. I think that spirituality ultimately soothes a lot of people. And I think religions, like the intention behind a lot of them is to soothe this this specific, uh, you know, fear. Right. But I, but personally, I think when anybody tells me straight up, this is what this means 100% point blank with no nuance when it comes to life or death, I'm in, I'm, I, I'm interested, I'm willing to listen and learn. But whenever someone is like, this is what happens after you die, I'm like, baby, you do not know. Yeah, Nobody does. I want a peaceful death in my sleep if possible. Right. It's just really important to get all the things out of the way that you can before you go, meaning living every day to its fullest, I guess, also YOLO. Yeah. But I do have a gift, which is that when I meet someone, I know their perfect gravestone. It does come to my mind. <laughs> I want a business where I curate these, and I know what my I want mine to say. Tell me. 
I want mine to say, don't make this about you. <laughs> wow. Because let me tell you something. <laughs> People throw themselves on the floor at your gravestone. Okay. Like, oh my God, crying, going crazy. You know what? It's about you. If anything in this world's about you, it's those square inches. And and I wanted to say, don't make this about you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's bring in an expert now. Let's introduce our first guest for this episode. Dr. David Cassaret is a professor of medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine, where he also serves as chief of palliative care in Duke Health. His research and work focus on improving care for people with life-threatening illnesses. He also published three books of nonfiction, including Shocked, which follows his own exploration of resuscitation and reveals how far science has come in this field. Hello and welcome, Dave. Can you introduce yourself in your own words? My name is Dave Cassaret. I'm a health services researcher and a palliative care physician. I'm a professor here at Duke, uh, but have long-term ties to Philadelphia, where I was at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in the palliative care program for many, many, many years. And a lot of my work is, is focused on, on trying to design systems of care that better meet the needs of patients and families at the end of life, but also upstream of that people who are suffering with chronic serious illnesses that may end their lives at some point, but are conditions that people have to live with uh, day in and day out. So how can we make those lives as comfortable and as meaningful and as dignified as, as we can for whatever time people have left, whether that's a day or a year or sometimes a decade? Let's get to the most simple question of the biggest mystery of all time. What does it mean to die? We want to specifically ask about the biology of death and what that looks like. The first question about what it means to, to die or what death means is, is kind of simple, but the more you unpack it, like a lot of things that cross the lines between physiology and neurology and, and philosophy gets increasingly complex. The definition of death that we rely on in the United States is you're kind of dead when your brain is dead. That's that's the way we we determine death, um, and there are criteria for what brain death includes, um, and those include the absence of any thought, absence of movement, um, absence of responses to what are some very basic reflexes uh, that should be in place. When those disappear, we say somebody is brain dead, and we say when they're brain dead, they are actually dead. Which, if you're somebody who's very cognitively thinking oriented, it makes perfect sense. Of mm -hmm. course, how can you be alive if you can't think and speak and interact? But that's not everybody. Um, and certainly some of the challenges we have in talking with families, um, when you're looking at a loved one um, whose heart is beating, their kidneys are functioning, right. um, but their brain is not and will never, trying to have that conversation with families and telling families that that person is dead it, it really takes a whole lot of, of credibility and trust in the medical establishment to get that message across because it's, it's not obvious, nor should it be, honestly. So that's, that's the definition, but it's, it's, it can be very difficult to, to implement. Thank you for that very clear answer. <laughs> we'll open up with a hard hitter, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, I'll move on to your book, Shocked. It's all about resuscitation and the dynamics of bringing people back to life. A concept people seem really obsessed with. What do you make of the interest in coming back to life after death? Yeah, well, I think there, there's the cynical answer, which is most people really don't want to die. But it also, for a lot of people, gets to some of the issues that we were talking about a few minutes ago. What does it actually mean to be 
dead and what's possible. And I think people are fascinated often by somebody coming back from the dead because it gets people thinking, whether they realize it or not, about whether you could bring back somebody who's been dead for a day or two days or three days. It's, it's really pretty easy to start letting your mind wander about what a world would be like if the person um, who's in a hospital bed who's going to die the next day could actually come back and be happy and healthy yeah. in year. It's a totally different world with a little bit of imagination. What do you make of people that welcome death? What do you make of the folks that think death is an integral and important part of life? And are you one of those uh, people? In general, I think, you know, the people who are accepting of death, at least in principle, I mean, that's something to aspire to, honestly, because I think those are the sorts of people who come to terms with dying much more easily. Yeah. Um, and I think they make better choices for them. Like they've thought about, you know, do I really want to be in a nursing home? Well, there's some pros and cons, but I spend some time thinking about it and I really don't want to. And I think those people make those sorts of decisions about being on a ventilator or getting chemotherapy for advanced cancer or being in a nursing home. They make those decisions better if they've had a chance to think about it, revisit those decisions every once in a while. And as long as you're not obsessive over it. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good way to waste your life by constantly thinking about death. Yeah. But I also think that in the United States, it is culturally here just something that is kept quiet and private. And of course, that breeds a lot of fear around it. I spent a lot of time in uh, Botswana, actually, working with a hospice program there and got to know that culture well, and other cultures too, that I've lived in, and worked in, like Thailand, where there's, there's much more acceptance of death. I think at least in part, because for many people in many walks of life, there just isn't as much to be done. And don't get me wrong, the, the health system in, in Thailand, for instance, is amazing, but they still don't do, for the most part, nearly as much on average as, as we do um, here in the United States. Here in the U.S., you just, you can't die with liver failure. You have to get on a transplant list. It's almost mandatory. You have to go through dialysis. You've got to get coronary artery disease fixed. And if you need a valve replacement, you get that. We take that to an extreme that I think other societies don't, um, with the result that, you know, a lot of people with serious illnesses here don't have to think about death to deny that death exists for another six months, another year in ways that that people in other countries can't. It's partly wow. culture, but it's partly culture that, that medical technology has created. I think as a doctor, I think we're partly to blame for that. Are you able to give us any examples of dignity for different people? What does that look like? Yeah, sure. It's funny. The first book I ever wrote actually was a book called Last Acts. Uh, it was published by Simon & Schuster, which is now <laughs> long, long out of press. But it was about the kinds of choices that people make when they realize that their time is limited. And a lot of that has to do either directly or indirectly with dignity. How do you want to make the time that you have left mean the most? And for some people, that's it's doing something that they've always wanted to do. Um, often it's taking care of family members. It's sort of going into those final days on your own terms, um, in a way that's consistent with who you think you are and who you've always tried to be. I have to ask about spirituality, the implications of, of death in that way. So considering that many religions and spiritual practices are wrapped around the idea of a soul, spirit, or afterlife, how do spirituality and medicine coexist in your work? I'm glad you said spirituality because I think one aspect that people bring to 
serious illness, um, end of dying processes, organized religion. But I think there's there's a, a big realm of spirituality beyond that that's um, defined in various ways, but meaning connectedness with others, connectedness with the universe, um, meaning purpose, like all those are, are working elements of, of spirituality. And I think that's that's really a big part of what we do. And when you get palliative care in a good hospital, you get care from a team. And our team at Duke includes a physician, a nurse practitioner for sure, but also a clinical social worker um, and also a chaplain. Yes. And I think the the really amazing chaplains are able to meet people where they are, and so because we see we see everybody, um, we yeah. see Buddhists, um, people who are Jewish, <laughs> Muslim, Catholics, Protestants, atheists, who are still often very spiritual, and so being able to provide that support is really critical. How does that affect you in your work? <laughs> like when you see that. I'll answer the subtext that, that may be behind your question. You can tell me if it's not. Um, sure. People say all the time that um, it must be so, so hard doing the work that you do, which I know you didn't ask, but it's a question that I get probably on a daily basis. <laughs> and the answer is, um, it's, it's actually, I mean, frankly, I don't think it's as hard to be a palliative care provider that meets people um, as they're nearing the end of life and helps them to get the most out of that life because our focus always is on comfort and, and quality of life. So it's it's uh, the first part of that answer is it's it's maybe not as hard as it seems like it would be. The broader and maybe more helpful part of that answer, though, is that it's really really rewarding, and mm. you know, especially if you take a broader view of spirituality, and that includes what people have done and what they've accomplished in their lives, and who they've helped, and who they've had relationships with, and what their dreams were. So yes, it's yeah. it's difficult working with people who are dying, but when people really get a chance to talk and share and describe all the amazing things they've done um, for other people, it's pretty special and it's a special time to be in a patient and family's life. We really appreciate you sharing it. Like, you know, these stories and illuminations like really kind of help build some of the things that you were talking about uh, in terms of the culture around death and it not being so scary. And you talked about it being rewarding. I really appreciate you bringing that up. How do you think we can take steps culturally to normalize death, especially obviously with kids, but also just in general in the United States? I mean, I look at other cultures like uh, Bhutan and one of the, the elements of, of Bhutanese society is beginning to teach kids about death and dying in school. And, you know, that, that seems like a huge ask. We can't in local school boards even agree on what textbooks should be used, let alone right. something like that. But I think there are there are ways to get at this um, in a way that's productive and, and maybe not so threatening. And, you know, a lot of the, the work that's going on in a lot of communities about grief awareness is one. Even if you don't think about dying yourself, you have probably lost somebody. And using that, beginning to normalize grief, teaching people how to talk about grief and bereavement, how to support somebody who's grieving. I mean, those are, are some interventions that are kind of public health interventions. You know, I mean, grief yeah. really is, especially in this COVID pandemic age, grief is a public health issue. And giving the average person on the street some of the tools to help somebody who is bereaved and grieving I think that will make the world a better place and it will get people used to talking about death. And that's that's one kind of out there example. The other is encouraging people to think about advanced care planning um, and advanced directives. 
I'm personally not a big fan of those advanced directives. I'm not sure they, they do much to shape care, but it, it is a cue to begin thinking about what would you want if you're ever in a position where you can't make decisions for yourself, you have a serious condition, asking people to think, even if they don't actually fill out an advanced directive, at least think about what that looks like and have those conversations with family members um, over the kitchen table over the holidays. I think that's kind of more guerrilla warfare against <laughs> uh, against the culture of death denying, but um, I think it, it could also be effective. What do you think is the best way to go in your professional experience? It depends. I mean, I think if you've said all of your goodbyes, you've done everything that you need to do, or most of it, then a cardiac arrest in the middle of the night, dying in your sleep, it's not bad. But I, I do give people the caution that everybody says, I, I want to die in my sleep. I don't want any warning. I just want to go. And I usually say, well, yeah, I, I get that. But really, there's there's nothing else you want to do. Nobody you want to say goodbye to. Nobody you want to apologize to. And they start thinking, well, all right, let me get that out of the way and then see if you can arrange it in a couple of months. So, yeah, I mean, assuming that I've done everything I need to do, then uh, quietly, no muss, no fuss in the middle of my sleep um, would definitely, definitely be much nicer than getting eaten by a shark. <laughs> well, if this is our last day, I, I'm grateful you came through to the podcast. So curious. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. Thanks. It's my pleasure. Reflection time. Reflection time. Let's get real introspective. That was actually a, a more lively discussion I was expecting to have. Yeah. I, he surfs. Thought it was cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Right. I Seeing like, the shark yeah. is like definitely something that makes you go like, am I about to yeah. kick the can? <laughs> I like how open he is about talking about the different ways that death is like culturally perceived around the world. Yeah. And also, you know what really stuck with me? That he was like, well, as long as you do everything you want to do, say everything you want to say to who you need to say it to, make your amends and- say sorry where you need to, doesn't really matter how you die. Like he was kind of like, you can have cardiac arrest in your sleep. That's ideal. That's what he would want. Mm -hmm. But he was like, as long as you do what you need to do and you feel that fulfillment, right. it's and all right. And I feel like these conversations, like many others that we've had, really deepens the understanding of what it means to be a human yeah. and a person. We have this experience. There's definitely science and mechanisms behind it. But, you know, of what does it mean to have a full life? What does it mean to live a good life? And- Honestly, that whole YOLO thing, like live mm -hmm. every day like it's your last, I, I love how we added a little bit more nuance to it. Yeah. It was like we were all doing that, be traffic jams all over the place, yeah. we'd be going crazy. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, living a good life might might mean more than uh, a little bit more than just running around and trying to jump off of a cliff or something. Yeah, like that. I, I liked his calm uh, way of approaching that in a very matter of fact manner. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that. Um, navigating that space daily and making innovations in that space is like really um, an expansive way to start thinking. So for our last segment, we asked guests throughout the season how their fields relates to the biology of death. Here were some of their answers. From our TMS episode, Roy Hamilton. We're asking all of our guests to share their opinions on death for a quick segment for our final episode. And uh, we want to ask you, what happens to the brain when we die? From my perspective as a neurologist, I, I define what it means to die by what happens to your brain. You know, from my way of thinking, and I think from the way of thinking of a lot of neurologists, when your brain ceases to be active, 
that means you are dead. To me, those two things are actually synonymous. That's, I guess, my answer to the question is that you just asked me about two things that are the same thing. From our neuroethics episode, Anna Wexler. In neuroethics, there is an area of work that deals with people with disordered states of consciousness, so people who can't communicate. And when you can't communicate, you can be in a coma, you can be in a persistent vegetative state. There's varying degrees, or you could be brain dead, right? Um, so there's varying degrees of that loss of function and loss of ability to you know, be conscious, essentially, right? Loss of consciousness. And so there's work now that tries to look, you know, not by asking people, can you communicate, but actually ask them questions and then measures what's going on, looks into what's going on in their brains, in response to that question. So they'll say something like, if the answer to this question is yes, imagine yourself walking around your house. If the answer to this question is no, imagine yourself playing tennis. And so they know the areas of the brain that are associated with, say, like playing tennis and walking around the house. And so they'll try to see if there's any residual function in these people. So anyway, that's all to say that that there's some work in neuroethics to try and actually it's not even just neuroethics, it's it's neurology to try and discover if there's some sort of way that people who have disorders of consciousness can communicate just by using their thoughts and not by speaking. And so that raises interesting ethical questions is like if, you know, you can't speak, but they're discovering that you're having some brain activity in response to a certain question, do you get different treatment than let's say other people who have the same from the outside look like they have a similar loss of consciousness, right? What do you communicate to the families of these patients? So there's, there's really interesting work going on in this area. From our wellness episode, Krista Barfield. In the work that you do, how does it relate to the biology of death or the expansion of life? That's a big question. One thing that I will say for sure is that soil is the basis of all health. When we die, we literally get, we go back to soil. And so there are these three nutrients that are so, so key when we're growing. And we call them in the gardening, farming world, NPK. And that's nitrogen, that's phosphorus, and potassium. Those things are like absolutely necessary. And nitrogen is the, the is one of the main molecules in the chlorophyll, which is responsible for actually feeding the plant during the process of photosynthesis. Phosphorus is super necessary in order to, for the building blocks of the plant, so to help the plant stay strong, all the structures of it, the wall, the cell walls, and all of that of the plant so that it can be strong and withstand things that may go on around it. Potassium is huge because it's necessary for the plant to be strong and that it can withstand drought and also can take in enough water, take in the nutrients that it needs. So when I think about us as humans and the biology of death, and if we are not fulfilled during our life with what we need, then the soil <laughs> is not enriched. And I feel like that's our job is that all of us are going to leave this planet at some point. So when we commit ourselves back to the soil, when our bodies are committed back to the soil, our life is what will have made that soil more enriched. And I think that's our job as humans. From our inclusion in advancing biology, Kendall Nichols. It's really interesting when it comes to like how I think about death because it's just like something that happens and it's something that's like inevitable at the end of the day. But when it comes to the brain, what it means to be dead, it just differs for literally all your research. So like traumatic brain injury, some people have heard of CTE and like, I'm not going to pronounce it because I'm terrible at pronouncing it, <laughs> but CTE essentially is like your brain is neurodegenerating, right? And so it's getting to a point where it's going to be, it's going, it's just dying almost. And it's just like, but people can walk around with CTE. So it's like, the concept of like your brain dying slowly 
and just degenerating and becoming like brain dead, you can still move and you can still function and you can still live. So I just think it's interesting when it comes to death as a whole, because like dead is dead, right? But then you have all these different definitions for all these different scientists and all their different research. And what does that mean? Did it actually die? How did it die? Did it burst? Did it like concave? Like all these different words. So I use, I literally think of death as something that is inevitable and it happens and it's an individual experience for literally everyone, but an individual experience for literally every cell. Like literally every cell can die differently. So it's just like, it's a very individual experience that we all connect through. And that's crazy to me, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) From our Oregon's episode, Robert Puglisi. So if we're talking about death and 3D printing, right, that very quickly takes us into like Star Trek land. Because again, our our human aspirational goal, right, is the extension of life and of good quality life. And that's what I think makes bioprinting so exciting. Because people can see a world where you're like, oh, you know, my my heart's not doing it anymore. I'm I'm just going to go get a freshly printed heart. And you can imagine how that would change everything it means about being human and what the what life means and what death means when uh, the ability to create something that we used to think was lost forever is now possible, right? That is what we, that is the aspiration. When, that's what gets people excited when we talk about bioprinting. Now, that's a long ways away, but, you know, we used to think that the things we're doing today were going to be impossible. That really changes the phrase live long and prosperous. Doesn't it? Uh, I like that. <laughs> Honestly, when, you, when death becomes like an option, oh my God, or yeah. just like a, I'll put that off till tomorrow. What? Yeah, you start getting into some like, what was that one movie where they're just like growing people for their organs? That's not how it's going to be. We're going to be able to make them. Wow. And from our biohacking episode, Ricky Solorzano. Well, there's something really interesting when it comes to death that I saw at, it's called the Biodesign Challenge, which is where students try to present projects on novel applications that they think will arise. And one of the students was talking about basically wherever something is dying, something new is growing or existing or living. So I think when it comes to the way we think of biodesign and death, whenever there's some sort of, whether it's something decomposing or something to degree going away, this this death, there's something new that's forming from that, whether it's another organism or new nutrients for another place. So it's kind of a, a life cycle that continues. Well, that was a powerful way to end this season. Thank you so much to everyone who has been listening along and learning with us. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next season. If you liked what you heard, leave us a review. And if you didn't like what you heard, keep it to yourself. Okay? I'm Angelica Pasquini. And I'm the Bull Bay. And we'll see you guys next season. See ya. Hi, this is Angelica Pasquini from So Curious. You know what? We love making this show, okay? But sometimes there are great bits, we just can't fit them into the episode. So we put together a bunch of great bonus content. And you can find that available at beyond.fi.edu. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of So Curious. This podcast is part of the Franklin Institute. The Franklin Institute is a science museum located in Philadelphia. The Franklin Institute's mission is to inspire a passion for learning about science and technology. For more information on everything about the Franklin Institute, visit fi.edu. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. 
Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast network for businesses looking to develop their own branded podcast content. Check them out at radiokismet.com. There's a lot of people who make this podcast happen. Thanks to the producers, Joy Montefusco and Jayatri Das. Our managing producer, Emily Cherish. Our operations head, Christopher Plant. Our associate producer, Liliana Green. Our audio team, Christian Cedarlund, Goldie Bingley, Lauren DeLuca, and Brad Florent. Our development producer, Opeola Bucola. Our science writer, Kira Veyette and our graphic designer, Emma Sager. 